I'm going to start this episode by reading a couple of passages from the book Acute Misfortune. This is a biography of the Australian artist Adam Cullen, and it was written by today's guest, Eric Jensen. It is early 2008, a month after Adam and I first meet, when I get my phone call. I had interviewed him for a profile in the Sydney Morning Herald, and he had enjoyed the piece. He asks if I will write his biography. Thames and Hudson want it, he says, and I'd like you to write it, Digger. Within a week, I'm staying in Adam's spare room. I am 19 and impulsive. It is Adam's studied disobedience that draws me to him, his mischief. I am intrigued by his reputation and disbelieving of his stories. Over the next few days, we begin a series of conversations that will last four years. And this next passage is towards the end of the book. By the time I met Adam, he was hopelessly alone. He asked me to write this book, even invented for it a publishing contract, because he wanted me to be his friend. Eventually, he thought that friendship was love. He was isolated, his talent waning, his years of self-medication beginning at last to kill him. He had found in drugs his fatal cure. They had eaten away at him until there was nothing left. In the end, I found him difficult to be around. I moved cities, but still got daily phone calls. I stopped answering them. His demands were sad and unreasonable. He wanted more from me, to live together, that we travel together, that I quit my job and work for him. We would buy a house, he announced in one call, and I would write this book in its front room. I did not expect to be so upset when I heard he had died. It was inevitable from the day we met, yet I was surprised by it. I was rattled by how the news affected me, by how grieved it made me. I drew a long bath and poured a scotch and I cried. They were despairing tears, as helpless as they were angry. Acute Misfortune is a really important book to me. I first read it when a friend lent me her copy. She sort of handed it to me casually saying, oh, you should read this, you'd like it. And I don't think she realised what it was going to do to me. I don't think she realised how perfect it was for me. When I read it, it was one of those times when everything else that I was doing just had to stop because I was reading this book. I'm not the most devoted reader, but this just blanked out everything else that was going on. When I see people talk about the book, you know, when Eric has been interviewed in the past and when people review it, they get distracted by the quite literally gory details of this story. The fact that Adam Cullen shot Eric by accident. The fact that he threw Eric off the back of a motorcycle. But as I say to Eric at the start of this conversation, I am much less interested in that than the person writing the book. I'm thinking about the guy, this young journalist, recording those details. I'm thinking about the person who's getting on that train again and again from Sydney and sitting on it and going out to the Blue Mountains and thinking about what this story is doing to him. I actually started out in journalism school, first year uni, but I quit because I couldn't hack the sense of what Eric here calls trespass. And I realized putting this together that in a very, very small way, I've kind of ended up doing the same work that I set out to do as a 19 year old. So this book is, it's wonderful, it's gripping, it's revealing in the best possible sense of that word. And the film that they made from it is, it's the first time I've seen Australia on screen looking like the Australia that I actually live in. It's not pretty, but I think it is just about perfect. So given all that context, uh, that might help explain why I'm particularly giddy at points in this recording. You just have to, you just have to overlook that, I'm afraid. But Acute Misfortune is not the only thing that Eric Jensen is known for. He is an extremely busy guy. He started a newspaper called The Saturday Paper, where he is the editor-in-chief. And this episode was actually recorded in their extremely nice podcast studio. 
He's written a book about the writer and poet Kate Jennings, who I knew nothing about going in, but who I'm now very interested to know better. And he has written a book of poetry. More specifically, Eric has written a collection of poems for his partner, for Evelyn. And in this interview, I think we get a sense of the complications of that, of writing poems for one specific person and then putting that work out into the world in book form. I really, really hope you enjoy this. Thank you, as always, for listening. It is lovely to have you here. As I said, I've never interviewed a journalist before, let alone the editor-in-chief of a national newspaper. So I'm just going to let that go. Um, but before I realized that you wrote poetry, your name was on my list of like, what if I could talk to that person though? Like, wouldn't that be great? Because, because of Acute Misfortune, because that book and the film, it's definitely one of my favorite books and the film I reckon would be my top five movies at all. Really? Yes, really, really. Um, I think it's, it's the best Australian production that I've seen like definitely in the last 10 years. I think if I was going to tell anyone to, like if somebody wanted to understand a particular kind of Australian masculinity, I would say you've got to just go and watch your cute misfortune. It's all in there. But so that's kind of where I started with your work. But I wonder from your perspective, if um, you're even interested in thinking about that work now, it's eight years since the film came out, I believe. Um, Surely not. <laughs> well, no, film, I think it's I think it's probably eight years since the book since came the out, book and came maybe out. five years since the film. Came yeah. Out. Okay. So, so is it something that is still when you look back on both those pieces of work now? How do they sit with you? Uh, I feel a lot of affection for both those works and I feel my relationship with each of them is quite different mm-hmm. um, and each of them taught me a lot about myself and about being a writer um, and yet there's so much I wish I could change about each of those works. I think, I, I don't know if this is something that every writer feels but I I would love to spend half my ri- half my life writing a certain number of books and then spend the second half rewriting them. That sounds great. Like yeah, I, can we organize that? That yeah. sounds good. <laughs> um, and I mean that really seriously. I, like I think often about how different Acute Misfortune would be as a book if I wrote it now. Mm. Um, and I'm not certain it would be a better book. It would be a more sophisticated, um, it would be a smarter book than the book that I wrote. Um, and I think, you know, with film, there's any number of films you could make even off a single screenplay. And so there's always this confusion of a, well, confused feeling that I have as a writer about the screenplay that ends up being made and about the film that ends up being made. Mm. Um, and uh, um, at the sort of finishing end of another screenplay at the moment, and it's, uh, I feel like it's so much more interesting to me than Acute Misfortune was, um, partly because it's, well, it's it's about a totally different part of life, Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel more able to engage with it than I did maybe, you know, I, I didn't really know what Acute Misfortune was as a book when I was writing it, I didn't really know what it was as a screenplay, and I... Um, and I learned in the process of writing that screenplay what the um, what the ethical demands of of dramatization are, um, and they're very different to the ethical demands of journalism or of nonfiction. Mm. Yeah, I think I heard you say in an interview about it that writing the book and subsequently making the film were processes of letting go of the subject, um, which seems to have links to the poetry collection as well, um, which I find really, really interesting. But 
the other thing that I heard you say was that there wasn't much of you in, in the book, in Acute Misfortune. But that's why I like it. I'm not seduced by a character like Adam Cullen, but I am fascinated by somebody who would stay in that zone with somebody like that and what that would do to a person. And I, and I completely understand it as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I really relate to it. I feel like even in a really tiny way, doing this work will occasionally bring me into contact with someone who is that charismatic and that scary. Um, yeah. And we seek out those people in the hope of understanding who we are. Like I, the reason I write biography is because I am yet to feel comfortable with my own experience of the world and I keep finding other people to help me get closer to understanding what that is. And I think um, the horrible thing about biography is that your subjects somewhat choose you and in choosing you tell you something about yourself. And every time I work on another project, like that, the Kate Jennings project was similar as well. It's um, Kate thankfully showed me a slightly better version of myself than the person that Adam found. Um, <laughs> right. But I keep desiring to be around these very forceful people who will make sense for me um, of those insensible things in the world, which is which is just how to be, how to how to interact with people, how um, how to feel comfortable. Mm. Yeah, somebody like that can really shape things and simplify things in a way because this they can be so forceful like you said do you think that we're getting any better though um i feel like australia is so under like the sway of like you know from the kelly myth onwards we're so under the sway of like slightly violent very charismatic powerful guys are we yeah. getting any better at at looking away from that and looking at other types of people? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I, 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 I would hope that Acute Misfortune did a small amount of work in saying people like this exist and are interesting, but they're not everything. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which they're interesting are not complete. And trying to have a more complete relationship with that person trying even to ask that person to have a more complete relationship with themselves. Mm. Um, you know, I think that that takes us somewhere away from the Kelly myth. I think like, so, yeah. That's the, why I like it. Is I mean, at the end of the film, that last shot, to me, says everything you need to know. This, yeah. this person is not an idol. <laughs> Equally. It's a sick person, I, I would accept the I would accept the argument that says we should just stop telling those stories and start telling different stories. We don't need to work at making those stories more complicated and more interesting. We could just go and tell other stories. And I think when I was writing about Kate Jennings, I was hoping that I was displacing some of that myth, but mm. in reality I was experiencing someone else's um, difficult relationship with the same situations. Mm. Well, the there must be something there. There must be something. Well, a bit of no, I, I, I mean, oh, there's this whole fetish for character that exists in Australian letters, um, and the characters that we fetishize are of a pretty narrow scope and a pretty limited range. Um, and if you know, if I weren't 19 when I wrote, when I started writing Acumi's Fortune, I probably wouldn't have chosen to write myself further into that same history mm. but again like I think the reason well what I take from it the reason I like it is because I, I see it as a story about you that just happens to be up against the background of this of this person and yours is a character that I really relate to so look just thank you for writing it <laughs> thank you for writing it <laughs> so but I don't want to spend all our time there because I I'm just acutely aware that you might, might be a little bit over talking about it. Um, I, I want to talk about 
this is like a very kind of 101 question that I would have asked six years ago on this show, but I do want to ask you about coming to poetry, like that very sort of kind of cringy question, only because, I mean, I came to poetry pretty late and I wonder whether this is something that's always been present in your life or whether it's something that has come more recently. Uh, I've always read poetry and poetry has always seemed to me very important and very necessary and writing for me has always been about noticing and my journalism you know for what it's worth has, has um, always struggled with its desire to tell stories probably in advance of breaking stories you know I'm a I'm a very much a journalist of small details mm -hmm. and um, and so and, and poetry informed a lot of that well before I was writing poetry. Um, but in, t in terms of actually coming to poetry and, and realizing it was something that I was writing or wanted to write, I think a lot of my other work people had always asked me if I was writing poetry and, and I my answer always was that I was not. Um, and really finishing this small book about Kate Jennings, where we spent a lot of time in each other's heads, um, was the impetus to beginning the writing of poetry. Mm -hmm. And it happened, I fell in love with Evelyn at almost exactly the same time um, I'd met them. They were, they were scoring Acute Misfortune, which was just finishing up at that time as a, um, in production. And I was also finishing the Jennings book. And I realised that I was writing poems every day for Evelyn to give them, mm. um, and and was doing and, and was doing that sort of um, compulsively and without a lot of thought. I think if there's probably a criticism of these poems, it's that they're very um, ephemeral and impulsive. Um, but I guess coming at it from a journalistic background, they felt truthful for that reason. They felt they felt like things that I found after they'd been written, even though I was the one who'd been writing them. Mm. Um, and the more I wrote and the more I let other people see them, and Kate Jennings was the first reader of this collection after Evelyn, I built a confidence in that they were actually poems. Mm. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because one of the lines in the book is, I don't know if you read poetry, I don't know if I write it. That's the first poem, right, yeah. chronologically. So it feels like you, it seems like you found the answer to that. Yeah, and... and I think there are probably people who are who are poets who think that's a really appalling way to approach poetry. <laughs> How do you mean backwards? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean to approach it um, emotionally like that. To, emotionally. to to allow it to just be this thing that you do in the same. You know, I I'm a journalist without training and a screenwriter without training and a biographer without training. I I've never trained for anything, and I think that's probably appalling to most people and should be. Like, I, I don't think that's a good way to approach things. I don't think there is some kind of, you know, um, something wonderful in the dilettante. I think it's embarrassing to approach the world that way. And it's just um, my impatience that causes me to be that way. Yeah, right. um, so I, when I say that poets wouldn't feel this to be a way that you should come at poetry, I, I assume, well, I mean to come at it as something that you just find yourself doing and then find yourself doing more and more and then and realize that as a reader that you don't mind what you're doing and that maybe it's maybe it's good or at least okay um and and that impulsiveness question I, like after i finished this collection i was i was reading um ferlinghetti and that line of his that's like um poetry is the shortest distance between two people seemed like an extraordinarily true line. Mm. Um, and I realised within that, all of my writing up to this point had been about placing things between me and the rest of the world. I became a journalist because the world was insensible to me and because having a notepad gave me an invitation to speak to people that I didn't otherwise feel I had. Yeah, I, re I relate to gave that. Gave me a purpose, gave, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, suddenly gave me permission within the world yeah. and then everything I wrote as a journalist um, 
was about proving to the world that I was normal or interesting or something, but it was proving it at one remove because it was proving it in the kind of act of publication and, and with a distance from me. Mm. And the space I'd felt between me and the world, I was always filling with journalism. And then poetry utterly collapsed that space. And for the first time, writing was about not protecting myself from the world, but opening myself to it. And it seemed like a fundamentally new way to write. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying it's an effective, well, like I, I'm, I have no idea if they're good poems or not, but they, um, they took the thing that was most meaningful to me in the world, which was writing, and made them meaningful to my experience of the world. Hmm. Why don't I get you to read one so we can hear um, maybe Why River? Would you be happy to read that one? Sure. Yeah. I should say I haven't read any of these poems since they were published. Oh, so great. Um, well, I, I will find now the clumsy syntax and the embarrassing lines. Um, Why River? I started this poem before you left. I finished it the day you told me it was over and you couldn't anymore. I wrote that the grass was in seed and there was so much of it the hillside seemed to blur. I wrote that the sky was low and perfect. I said the sea was folded and you said to write that down. I didn't think you would go. I didn't guess it would be my anger because I thought it would be yours. I turned out my pockets and held open the palms of my hands. I looked at the rocks piled on the sink, flecked now with water from the tap and felt uncertain about everything. Had I fooled myself on the beach as we stood on the edge of those pools that I was taking them for some place better. You said you were sad as you left the house to see the little plant we bought sitting alone in a too big white pot. The rocks we collected were all gray or black like a mouse's fur. Thank you. I'm gonna reply with a poem by David Brooks, one of my faves. This is the second time I pulled this book out in an interview in, in less than a month, so sorry, David. Uh, sorry, everyone. This is from his book, The Balcony, which I think is a similar project. He wrote it as he was falling in love with um, his current partner. And I think the epigraph is Fatea, 77 love poems, and then some. So I, I want to read you this one. I wonder what you think of it. He calls this one Catullus 123. 100 love poems? Don't be ridiculous. Your colleagues, your colleagues will give you shit. And all those others for whom love is an expression of failure, lack of nerve, something not really to be talked about in gritty Sydney or those smug and urbane capitals to the south of it. If you publish them, I warn you, You'll have to make them look like something else entirely so people can read them with impunity. The lover is a criminal in this real world, a social embarrassment like a pregnant woman, a suicide bomber, a vegan. Fuck if you have to, but don't go back for seconds unless you can make it look like you don't want to. So he was not popular <laughs> writing that book. And I, I bring that poem in as a harsh poem. Mm. Um, I bring it in because I... I feel as if like the the degree to which you are exposed in this book, like the openness of the poems, the directness of them, that like shorter space between two people. I I checked to make sure it was the same Eric Jensen because I thought like surely the guy who wrote Acute Misfortune didn't go and write these love poems. He, he's they're so honest. Like how, how? Does acute misfortune seem dishonest? No, no, no. It doesn't seem <laughs> dishonest at all. But like you said, there's a subject between you and and the world. Whereas these mm. are these are words um, to your partner, and they are completely well, not unadorned, but 
Yeah, just the, the degree of honesty there. I, I guess the question I'm working around to is, were you scared at any point putting this book out into the world? Were you, did you think about criticism like the stuff that people said to David Brooks? Um, probably not enough, and this is probably what happens when a journalist writes poetry, <laughs> is that journalism is so much about um, the intimacy that you create with a person when you're writing about them and then the trespass that you visit on them when you publish. And I th you know, um, I thought publishing these poems was a, you know, a sort of grandiose romantic gesture. Mm. Um, and Evelyn, my partner, who is still my partner, um, found them vastly more difficult. Uh, and, and probably if I had been more sensitive, I wouldn't have published them the way that I did publish them. And that's there's a number of sort of political objections that Evelyn has to the poems, um, or at least to the publication of the poems, around being forced into the role of muse, which is a non-consensual role, mm -hmm. about having one version of a relationship become the canonic version of that relationship. Um, and as a non-binary person, to have the gender imbalance of male publication imposing on them roles that they never sought to fill. Um, and I, I think I was insufficiently sensitive to that because I'm so used to trespass being a form of, well, a necessary route to publication. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, when just before they were published and I was doing some final edits and, and you know, Evelyn was making some peace with them, but it's still, it was no longer the romantic gesture I intended it to be. Um, oh, I called Kate Jennings and asked her about it. And Kate Jennings' view was like, there, you, sh you know, sympathy for no one and publish always is Kate's view. And then I called Helen Garner about it and Helen was editing her diaries at the time. And, and <laughs> ultimately, I think I chose the two people most willing to forgive me and sort. What, please tell me what Helen Garner said to you. I have to know. Well, Helen was at the time pruning a diary and, and said that she had just cut down a big tree in the backyard of this diary and made light for all the other parts. Okay. And at the same time, I had just reversed the order of the poems in the book and felt that somehow I'd created at least a ripple in time that mm. made them less confronting. I certainly appreciated that that structural choice for sure as a reader. I assumed uh, that Evelyn was no longer your partner reading reading this book because it begins um, with fights, with leaving, things like that. So I, I just I just wrote that that into the story there. <laughs> and I think um, this is because the poems are deliberately out of order. Yeah. And the reason for that is that I feel as if Time is elastic in all relationships, and um, and it's relationships are uninteresting to most people and should be, um, and they're interesting if you are at the back wall of one and can call forward to the front of it and vice versa, um, and so it was a yeah I think it was a structural device about trying to make a relationship um, accessible and interesting, but it has confused many people because. Evelyn and I um, sort of left each other a number of times, but we are still together. In fact, th this collection is drawn from about 300 poems that I wrote for Evelyn um, across the course of a couple of years. And then since this has been published, I've probably written another three or 400 poems, um, which I'm Wow, you are now outpacing more, David Brooks by like six books. <laughs> I, I'm now more um, uh, circumspect about publishing. Right, wow. Goes back to what you were saying at the start about the rewriting thing. Okay, so which poets were you reading? Um, and maybe this, these are even people that you've read since the book's come out that, that help you to feel like it's okay. Because, um, I, I mean, like, to be clear, I don't think that this is, like, in any way an anomaly or a bad thing or anything like that. Yeah. It's, it's just that <laughs> I had a certain idea of who you were and then you wrote this book. <laughs> If you know what I mean. So who um, were those poets? I mean, I think they're probably really 
embarrassing um, no such touch thing. points. No such thing. No, we don't do that um, here. The poets who had a big impact on this collection, obviously Kate Jennings, who died um, uh, more or less on the day of publication, but who was a, the first reader after I've learned his poems and a big source of encouragement and a big source of um, belief in the loneliness of poetry, yeah. I think. Um, and I say that as someone who is not very much involved in poetry scene. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, everyone who comes on your podcast says, I'm really not involved in the poetry scene. Every single person says that. And yet, <laughs> I've been in rooms where there are poets together, so this can't be wholly true. No, no, there's a lot of, um, yeah, like... There's, imagined there's loneliness. Yeah, there's imagined loneliness, perfect, yeah. Um, but Kate, Kate had a genuine loneliness um, about her poetry and about herself and about Australia, um, from, from which she had exiled herself. And I started sort of sheepishly showing her poems and experiencing her encouragement and her generosity. Um, and as someone who had experienced for years before her, um, her brutality and her directness, it was hugely encouraging because it felt like it was real. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think, um, Come To Me, My Melancholy Baby, her first collection of poems, it's been out of print for 30 years or something, mm. remains one of the most extraordinary first collections of poetry published in the country. It's insane to me that it's not more widely read, yeah, right. that it's not still in print. Well, I've got to find it. Um, it's fabulously expensive to buy now. Okay. Um, I've, <laughs> I've tried to bring it back into print through various projects and have not yet succeeded in um, mounting the epic song cycle that will ultimately give it a second <laughs> life. Okay. Um, but it's, you know, it's just so, so very good. Mm. Um, and so plain and forceful and singular. Um, the other collections that meant a lot to me while I was writing this were um, probably Jane Hirschfield's work. Yeah, she's mentioned in there. And she? she's mentioned in the book. Um, and I met her while I was writing them and got to understand a little bit more about what she is doing as a poet and, and Sharon Olds also. And this is what I mean about these being embarrassing I don't know. Is Sharon examples. Olds embarrassing? I don't know her well enough to know whether she's embarrassing Well, I just not. think, you know, if you're a writer of um, poems that concern themselves with the everyday and um, with the ordinariness of life um, and that f attempt to find the miraculous in mundane things. I, I feel like Sharon Olds does that all of the time. It, it, you know, it's a little bit like saying like, oh, you know, Mary Oliver looks at trees and makes them new. Um, it's Look, <laughs> I poke fun at Mary Oliver a lot and so I'll own that. But the fact is, she's great. She's really, really good. <laughs> She's really good at what she does. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I don't think any of those reference points would seem very directly engaged with what I was then doing on the page. Yeah. But they certainly um, convinced me that looking and writing um, was a valid thing to do and that rhythm was something that you could find within your head and was just about you know, pace and echoing. Mm. Right, yeah. So I suppose as against, I'm trying to think of an example of the opposite of those sorts of poets and my mind immediately just goes, automatically goes to somebody like Ashbury. Yeah. Um, the plainness was important to you rather than... Uh, utterly yeah. important. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, uh, like C.A. Conrad uh, is a poet who I was reading when I was writing and, I love and C. A. Conrad. just thinking yeah. this person so makes the world wonderful. Oh, my God. That book, um, While Standing in Life for Death, do you have that? Yeah. Oh. Uh, and the, oh, my God. I've never laughed so much reading a book. 
And, you know, that, those poems have absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing in this book, mm. except that Conrad can be in a car park and, you know, give people wings for hands and, and in that moment create a different universe that's as real and as penetrating as the one that they're in. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that collection because I haven't had a chance to talk about it. I haven't known how to talk about it um, except... It just it brought me so much joy when I read it. Have you read the Frank poems? No, no. It's a collection of poems um, orbiting and surrounding this Frank character. I think it's Frank, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially C.A. Conrad through their childhood, and it's so fabulously bodily absurd. And I wrote to C.A. Conrad about getting the rights to make like a a one to one film adaptation in which. Every absurdity was rendered just as it was, but in without any um, special effects. Just wow. like just 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 rendered as a kind of um, there's a scene where a baby's thrown out of a top window and someone runs down to catch it. But obviously, in the film version of this, the baby would not make that that plummet. Um, <laughs> right. And anyway, C.A. Conrad never wrote back to that uh, particular request. Look. I can't imagine C.A. Conrad checking their email. <laughs> I mean, they've got this other project, this rituals project, where they're like yeah, staying yeah. in. What are the car parks in the States that you're allowed to park your car in and not get moved on? Oh, there are those, aren't they? I'm not sure. Um, it's it's one particular chain of like hardware store. Maybe yeah. it's, um, oh God, maybe it's Walmart. Walmart might be it. I yeah. think, yeah. Yeah, where you can just hang out. I'm thinking to, thinking about this question of, well, I don't want to say regret, but maybe there's you have a bit of a circumspect um, sense now that it's, I guess, a year on since the book came out or getting on towards a year. And the line that you have in the poem, Be Careful, my grandmother warned against poems. She said they are forever. Um, I think that might be the entirety of the poem. That's actually. the whole poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, not, they're not generous poems. <laughs> I appreciate that too. But so what has been, what have been the responses beyond your own response and have, what has surprised you? Um, I mean, it's been lovely to publish poetry and then have other writers and poets receive those poems as poetry mm. and be very generous to what I am trying to do in the poems. Um, and that wasn't the reason for publishing. I mean, I, honestly, I published these poems um, because I am guilty of constant and elaborate romantic gestures. And this was intended as a romantic gesture. It was just more complicated than other romantic gestures can be. <laughs> it um, just involved a contract. And... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I, yeah, the lovely thing is just to have um, people I admire read the poems and then get in touch and and see them for what they are and I think um, it's funny like I I know that I will never write memoir or never intend to write memoir and yet everything I've done is some form of concealed memoir and this is the most explicit version of that Mm. and um, like a week after it was published I had this horrible realisation that what I should have done was publish this as memoir and not as poetry and waited to see if bookstores would place it in their memoir section Mm. because it's not poetry in a conventional sense of a collection. It's deeply troubled by the questions of narrative and recollection and it's, it's very much, it's a, you know, it's a memoir that's not so different to what my diary looks like. It's not so different to what my journalism looks like, really. Mm, mm. Um, formally, it's slightly different, but the every observation, every attempt at a turn of phrase in this collection is is no different to what I would be doing if I was working on a biography. Well, I don't know. I I don't know that you can do exactly the same thing because as you're talking about those choices I'm thinking about a book like The Argonauts obviously Mm. 
or um, there's a book called The Undying by Anne Boyer, um, which is a memoir of her cancer diagnosis and treatment. Um, And I look at a book like that and I think, they're almost poems, but they're they're not quite. And the Argonauts, like Bluets, would be maybe a little closer to this. But again, like I don't know. I think I, I think you had to write poems. I mean, you, obviously you had to. That's right. I yeah. mean, you don't choose. <laughs> we we're not given any of these choices. It's yeah. like when you write film, you're not. You just have to write film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I might get you to read one more. This one's standing apart. I'd love to hear. Thank you. Um, have you chosen all the sad poems in the collection? For the, because there's, it's this <laughs> hap- there's happy part. Okay, we'll read, right, read, read we'll, this. We'll end with a happy one. Standing apart. This poem, I have to say, comes immediately after the last poem I read. There's no hole in the relationship. This is This is the... Uh, beginning of the second year of the relationship and the beginning also of its first major collapse. Standing apart. We lasted a year and one week. On the Monday you said it was over. We slept apart four nights. On the fifth day you permitted that I could visit with some lunch. In the hallway we hugged. I felt a hollow, pitying cold. In my dream we stood in a new house, on a sugar-soaked floor, scrubbed and hopeful. Thanks. Thank you. Maybe I did choose (laughs) the sadder ones. There's joyous poems in this (laughs) There are, there are. We will definitely make sure to include one of those. (laughs) So I I would love to know how you feel as a poet. Do you feel welcome? Do you feel understood? Do you feel like you are on the outside? (laughs) <laughs> I think I think all of us as writers have a tendency to feel like outsiders mm. and um, I have to work to remind myself that I have all of the privileges of an insider in so many ways. Um, even at the weekend I was at Byron Writers Festival and feeling my usual outsider self but then everyone I bumped into was effusively friendly towards me and I realised that, you know, I actually occupy a space in which people either like me or feel that they have to pretend that they do. And, (laughs) like, that's... I can't walk around pretending to be an outsider. I think poetry... Poetry is curious in that the form itself um, asks you to believe that what you're doing isn't real. What um, do you mean? As in, every poet who comes on the show says, I feel like an outsider and I feel like I have no community and I feel like there is this kind of cohort of poets, all of whom are talking about things that I'm not a part of. Um, and I think the reason for that is um, poetry asks whoever is reading it to believe in a way that... Um, that other writing doesn't because poetry leaves out so much that you have to trust in the poet and none of us trust in ourselves and so we always feel like what we're doing isn't isn't real Mm. and I think particularly you know I think I think people who um lots of lots of great poets are coming at poetry without um without the kind of discipline that says you know, here is you know here is a very careful meter and a you know and a and a dictated rhyme and you know, and if you're not working inside something that you can point and say is doing that thing, you're working inside imagination in a way that almost no other work asks you to because within the imagination of fiction, you're also proving your craft and filling in spaces and convincing people of the story all the way through. Poems exist in this 
I think, wonderfully um, scarce form that says, I'm not going to do any convincing, I'm just going to be. And that, that, uh, that on every line is just as much as I can leave here for you to read. And you have to do the work of believing me when I tell you this is the truth. Yeah, it requires a level of faith. Yeah. And, and because of that, I think most people who write poetry walk around thinking that no one thinks their poems are real because no one believes that just enough is the truth. And that's why people walk around pretending as if there is this absence of camaraderie. I mean, there's, there's also, like, obviously, that whole knife fight in a phone box energy Forks. of Australian poetry. Yeah. Um, and I think, look, maybe my view on this is different because my pathway into poetry, into writing it at least, was through Kate Jennings, so through someone who I admired enormously and who was frequently giving me permission to continue thinking that this was something I was doing. Mm. And for the first six months of writing poems, I, was, I didn't show her anything. I was terrified to imagine that she might read my poems and think less of me. Mm. But at least once I did show her something, she said, no, this is good and you should be galvanised. And it made me feel less alone, but I understand the loneliness that everyone feels. And I still feel like I'm a journalist writing poems and that there must be some kind of snickering crowd that, that's, that's like, oh, look at these embarrassing poems that this journalist thinks that they're writing. Um, and that is not a feeling I have about my other work. Right. Well, I suppose that also comes back to the what I was saying before about exposure and like the the intensely personal nature of them as well. Like so many poets I I speak to, and particularly I feel like I've had a run recently um, of poets who've been quite keen to hide behind their hide inside their poems, hide mm. behind their work and their their choices. And um, yeah, you are not doing that. So, yeah. Well, I think. A part of that is probably attempting to correct some of the privacy that is offered to me within journalism mm -hmm. and a guilt I have about the fact that the rest of my life is concerned with taking other people's stories from them and telling them on my terms and wanting to at least offer some kind of... Um, honesty of my own but having said that ultimately the driver is just you know it's the it's the mad naked running driver that is love that you know that says um why shouldn't i just run through the streets and tell people yeah. how wonderful it is to feel or not feel or feel hurt or any of these things that the the thing that is making me want to do that um is this mad belief in how wonderful it is to be in love and also um, how joyful it might be to tell other people about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think if people are laughing at that, then that probably says more. I mean, I don't them. know that they are. <laughs> I, I, um, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we should, we should have you read one of the, the ones that is that kind of thing. Um, so Wait, I saw your marks. I think the, the, your last selection is actually not um, grim. At lunch. Yes. Okay. This one has Frank O'Hara in it. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Frank O'Hara, who um, most people assume I should feel some kinship with or connection with Frank O'Hara. They say that about me too. People say like, oh, you've... You must be into O'Hara, which I'm not not into O'Hara. He's a lot harder to read, though, than than you might think. Like, I think the yeah. lunch poems are really good, and I love the format of the lunch poems, mm. and I love the discipline of them. Um, I think I assume people think that I should really love Frank O'Hara because of um, the fact that a lot of my work begins... Uh, in the visual and like a, a right. visual arts is the thing that most like painting is the thing that I have um, the greatest aptitude with explaining 
and with feeling an interest in and, and with being present to. And Ahara obviously was a curator and a poet and his relationship with, especially those second generation abstract expressionists like Grace Hardigan, who this poem is about, or um, uh, Joan Mitchell, you know, he, he was within a milieu where the very rhythm of painting was making his poetry move and his poetry was moving back into the paintings. And I kind of, I appreciate and am interested in that. And then I read the poems each time and I think um, that somehow the task that they've set for themselves is much too knowing, particularly the lunch poems, um, and self-concerned. And I think there's um, John Nixon, the um, Australian abstractionist who died last year, he made a series of lunch etchings, unconnected to Frank O'Hara's project, um, where every day when he was working, I don't know, happily or unhappily at the VCA, um, he would give himself an etching plate at the beginning of lunch and make a single state etching mm. and produce the etching by the end of lunch and then discard the plates so as not to addition it. And those pictures mm. have all the joyous energy of taking your lunch to make something from mm. or, or giving away your lunch to make something from and then being quite, um, quite uninterested in what it is you've made. Yeah. Because in each of those instances, John could have made an edition of 20 and, and been like, you know, this is work and I want this work to be seen. Um, but he didn't and the work is better for it. And I feel like in O'Hara's poems, there's this desire always for the reader to be there with him in those poems. Yeah, and for him, his presence is so loud. So if you don't love him, then you probably won't. And I think, uh, I'm not trying to forgive myself here, but um, when I wrote these poems, I never expected to publish any of them. And by the time I published these, I'd written another year and a half worth of poems that are not in this collection. So these poems had become slightly removed, I guess. Um, and I think it does, I think with the lunch poems, they're very deliberately poems conceived of and realized within a window within a window of time in a very specific place that very specifically try to do something. Um, and they do it calling to a reader who they want to be received by. Right. There's a goal in mind. Yeah. Whereas in this case, there was no expectation or goal. Well, there was, there was one reader and I just hoped each time to tell them that I had been thinking of them. Um, should I read at lunch? That'd be great. The, the, just to be clear, the only uh, Frank O'Hara poem in the collection. <laughs> Um, which is the end of year two, the very last poem in year two. Today is Grace Hardigan's birthday. If she were alive, she would be 96. I read her say she had no talent, only genius. She had left behind the groan and anguish. Frank O'Hara wrote her poems, only you can't see her in them because he's always in the way. He always has a ferry ticket in his pocket or a lunch of eggs to finish. I read that he wanted to be a concert pianist, only he went to war instead. The same piece described his poetry as important and even popular. I can see you in my poems, even this one, broken off in the parts I've wanted to see and the ways I've tried to look. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. It's funny you mentioned the Nan poem. Um, I sent an earlier version of that poem to my Nan at one point uh, in which I'd expressed, um, there's just one line that I'd cut out of it in which I had expressed upset at, uh, at not having met Grace Hartigan, Grace Hartigan not being alive, and Nan wrote back and said, your upset is insincere. There is no way that this is actually affecting you. Wow. So you took it out? Well, it, it was just a bad line. Nan, Nan is increasingly a part of, uh, of poems. Um, I wrote a Nan poem today. Um, I'm just finding it. 
Is this now aware of paste? Do I, it, do is it. Is it? I love um, it. Yeah, this, this is a Nan poem from today. Nan wrote to say, the last poem was better. The last three lines are chilly and brittle, a human finale to all that cold. Shit, she said that? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> How could you not use that? <laughs> Another Nan poem from today, I was just collecting, it's Nan's birthday this week, I was just looking through some old notes. Um, Nan says there was an error in the first sentence, not to blush. Don't answer this if you don't have time. I'd have said whom, she says, but now I'm not confident. No, it's right, her being the object. I am, of course, chuffed, she says, after all these years to be correct, even over something so trifling and minor. So your, your Nan is a writer as well? Mm. Nan is a, just a brilliant, uh, difficult, spiky person mm. who's probably someone who has caused me to run into the arms of brilliant and difficult and spiky people. Um, but she, she was a librarian and, um, yeah. The Nan poems in there are all more or less direct quotes from Nan, and the Nan poems there are direct quotes from Nan. <laughs> I love it. I was thinking about the fact that you have a... I mean, honestly, I was just amazed that you responded to my email. Then you said that you listened to the show, which terrified and delighted me. And then I was thinking about the fact that you have this huge job um, and I was thinking about time, but I've found over the years that asking people, how do you fit it all in? is just a non-question because the fact is that they do. So I thought I would go with a slightly different angle. And I was thinking about this line from William Carlos Williams, who says, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Have you heard that line before? Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you respond to it? Um, when it gets bandied around a lot, I'm not sure anyone quite knows, knows what, exactly it what it means. Knows exactly what it means. My very perfunctory um, answer, which doesn't properly engage with the bigger question that William Cars Williams is asking about purpose, um, is that the thing I most often recommend journalists to do is to read poetry, because the thing that is most absent in journalism is a capacity to take the world and make it smaller and fit it onto the page. Um, and in doing so, hopefully, make it larger also. And, you know, like I said earlier about noticing that, you know, all we ever do as writers is notice. And yet we have all these forms of writing that forgive us um, the basic request of noticing. That we can do all sorts of other things. Yeah, get caught up in the gymnastics of it all. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, you know, in a, I, I don't think this is at all what he means, but I would love to live in a world in which the poetry of newspapers told you truth. And, yeah, and it's that, a nice idea. And that was, that was a place that you could find yourself. I mean, mm. I have no idea why there is so much bad writing in newspapers. And, the, you know, maybe one of the things that has made me seek out other avenues for being a journalist, like starting the Saturday paper or doing things like that, has been about um, just a general discontentment that I have with, with how um, willing newspapers are to harbour bad writing. Mm. And even how, when I used to work in a big newsroom, um, how suspicious journalists are of good writing. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Um, and I just, I never really understood that because I think good writing should be the place from which we start our journalism and then everything else should move from it. And this is you know, obviously subjective um, account of what good writing is, but I, um, less subjective is the bad writing that's so obviously there. Yeah. I think you're probably in a position to judge. 
better. <laughs> well, look, I, I've asked you all the questions I wanted to ask you, except that, um, again, I'm just fascinated that you listen to my tiny little podcast. Is there anything that you've heard that's like really riled you? You're no. just like, that person... No, I don't get angry. You don't get angry? No. Ever? No, it's not true. I live in a maelstrom of anger, which I have no capacity to express. And so okay. I just... I can relate to that. Um, no, I, I have not listened to your show and thought... Uh, what, if anything, I've listened to your show and thought, this is really smart and really good. And I feel like a sense of camaraderie and community in listening to it. I think, um, oh God, what's it called? There's a, there's a podcast called, I think it's Poem, Poem Talks. Um, uh, yeah, Al, Al Phil Reese's Al, Al Yeah, he was, he was podcast. my teacher. Yeah. So yeah. I think that is such a fantastic show. Yeah, he's, he's good. It's so extraordinarily generous. Yeah. You can have, as I have, no education and listen to that and feel like you're being invited into a world in which poetry is not just there, but it's something that lives for you and that you can live for. And that, yeah. Um, and that the small, clever things that a very plain poem can do, um, when you hear someone else take the time to notice those things mm. and to care about those things, mm. it makes doing those things yourself also feel wonderful. Absolutely. Oh, God, he would just be so delighted to hear you say that. That is always what I felt like he was going for and is going for and that is what he's like as a teacher you know he gets you to think about like why this word why is the line broken here and he makes you excited to answer those questions and to realize that you can answer them and everything that you say is, is totally worthwhile so yeah can, can I read a, another unpublished poem please I'm really indulging myself here <laughs> at this point um, that's great I'm very glad this at the weekend, uh, I was talking to Chrissy Neen. I don't know if oh, you know lovely. Chrissy. Great. I I don't know her, but I know her book. Yeah. Um, and I felt, as I do every time I speak to Chrissy, this um, genuine excitement about the idea that we are writers, and that we have a purpose in the world, mm. and it's a sometimes ugly and suspicious purpose. But within that purpose, we have ourselves. And I always, I always leave a conversation with Chrissy just thinking like, God, the world is fantastic and we're lucky to be inside it and we're lucky to have even a modicum of skill that lets us try to make sense of it. Mm. Um, and I think and I walked from talking to Chrissy straight onto a beach and wrote a couple of poems on the beach straight away. Um, and this is one of those poems. And, and, and this poem is kind of about also the realisation that Chrissy has shown me in a number of her books um, that the erotic is too strong a word, but that the erotic and the, and the domestic can live together in a sentence and are more wonderful for it. Mm. And that the great ordinariness of the world can be sensuous if you care to feel it. I think that's, I think that's what makes Chrissy such a like just terrific force and, and, and a great writer. Um, anyway, this poem is called For Chrissy Neen. The ocean's final sound is of a quilt being shaken, the slap of fabric against dull fabric, a brace of tattlers on the sand, chattering at this work. Wow, thank you. I really hope you're going to keep writing. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any risk of you not keeping writing poems, but I hope that you do. That's very kind of you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Is there anything else that I didn't lead you to you wanted to talk about? Uh, not really. Um, uh, thank you for indulging um, unedited, unpublished poem talk. Oh, I love that. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna oh, can I? Reading. Can I? No, yeah. this is now. Now I just want to read poems. This is just the problem go. with poetry, isn't just it? Just go. Yeah. This can is I? No, this is because this is a feel-good poem, and it's also about why I think of poems as things that should be published. Um, it's one of the last poems in the first year of this collection. It's called "Listening." I think of poems 
as quiet things, read piece by piece, in precise voices, too few words to not be true. I'm riding a tram to a house that is not yours, where you are staying to mind a dog. I think of the flowers in the room where you are sleeping that are the same colour as the ring on the jar. I think of your friend I haven't met, who put them there so you would feel welcome. The line finishes short of the house. I walk the last block and go too far and have to come back. On second pass, I see your car almost gold and wonder how I missed it. It's funny, when, when I heard you read that, I realised, because I read it as the line finishes short of the house, the line that I am writing finishes, like I'm done with this poem now, just before I have to get off the tram, but it's also the tram line finishes. This is the Alfil Reef. That's Alfil Reef.